Church family, please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 2, 40 through 52. Please read with me the verses in bold. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I didn't do that. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, you're, you've made it in time for the second uh, sermon in a series on the book of Luke. And uh, this morning, the story of boy Jesus. I love how the scripture says that. I, boy Jesus. I have a boy Asher in my house. I'll talk about him in a minute. I know uh, also that there are a few scouts in the room. Uh, I know that some of you are current and or former Boy Scouts. There's some Girl Scouts, maybe. I know there are some Trail Life Guides, maybe some Royal Rangers. There's a variety of groups uh, that do this kind of mentoring. I was a Boy Scout, I was actually a Cub Scout, and then a Boy Scout. I never made it to Eagle Scout, like a few of the elite uh, folks in the room. But when I was in seventh grade, I was a Boy Scout, and I was invited to become part of this thing called Order of the Arrow. And it's kind of a special group within the group. It's kind of an honor society, I guess, within the Boy Scouts. And uh, there are certain secrets of the order that I have sworn to secrecy and also forgotten. <laughs> uh, but I do remember... Uh, the invitation to the Order of the Arrow is kind of a cryptic invitation without a lot of information, uh, but ultimately it ended up being a weekend-long ordeal that came, uh, that involved uh, being dropped off in an unknown spot in the woods with a limited amount of supplies and, uh, and needing to make shelter and uh, find and make food and uh, sort of survival camp for two nights solo 
before being rescued and welcomed uh, into the order. It's probably the closest thing in my life that I've ever experienced to sort of a coming of age, sort of you are a man now ritual, although I didn't kill any wildlife with my hands and was pretty confident there was another kid sort of just over the next hill doing the same thing. I was about the same age as Jesus was in the passage that we just read this morning. It's the only story in the scripture that we have about boy Jesus. And it's only included here in the book of Luke. Uh, We're not sure uh, how Luke learned of this episode when Matthew and Mark and John don't recount it. And we can't be sure how that happened. Uh, But last week, Daniel did read for us the introduction to the book of Luke in which Luke tells us that uh, he is... Uh, compiling the accounts of eyewitnesses in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. And, uh, and the passage this week includes this line that tells us that this, is, this story is one that Mary, Jesus' mother, treasured in her heart. And so maybe a good guess or maybe a best guess is that Luke asked Mary about Jesus' childhood And this is the story that she told. The story of a family trip to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It would have been a trip that uh, in Israel, men were required to take every year to go to the temple and worship. But women and children were welcome and would go if a family was well off and could afford it or if they were particularly devout And we know from the scriptures, even this morning, that that uh, describes Mary and Joseph, particularly devout. What we also know is that in Jewish culture at the time, a 12-year-old boy was still a boy. But a 13-year-old boy would be required to attend the Passover and other Jewish rites as a man. So the next year, Jesus would be required to come and do all of the things that a man would do at Passover. And so this would have been Jesus' last Passover as a boy. And the year ahead would be filled with preparations and learning and uh, opportunity for him to get ready to join the other men the following year at Passover. Those preparations eventually developed throughout time and culture into what we would call today a bar mitzvah, which literally means to be responsible under the law or to be a son of the law is to be bar mitzvah. The process and the ceremony through which a Jewish boy becomes responsible for himself to God. Bat mitzvah is a similar ceremony for a young woman. Uh, They are no longer under their parents as far as the law and the worshiping community is concerned. Traditionally, I'm told, the father of a bar mitzvah uh, uh, has the opportunity at the ceremony to offer a prayer of thanks to God that he will no longer be punished for his child's sins. But for Mary and Joseph, with just one year to go, Uh, One year and counting before they are officially no longer responsible for him. They go up to Jerusalem 
and lose the Son of God. They had one job to do. No wonder it's burned into Mary's memory, this account. But I don't think uh, actually that that's the reason or the only reason why God saw, God saw fit to include this in the scriptures. The story is subtle, it's subtle but profound in what it tells us about who Jesus is already, who he is, and what he has come to do. And so this morning, just uh, two parts of a sermon uh, about boy Jesus. Boy Jesus, who he had to be to accomplish God's mission, and boy Jesus, what he chose to do with every moment that he was on this planet. Boy Jesus, who he had to be. If I was forced to describe for you what it was like to be a 12-year-old boy going on 13 in two words, I would choose uncomfortable and hungry. My mother would literally come home from spending a small fortune at the grocery store, and my brothers and I would come out to the car and help her unload it and take food directly out of the trunk and up to our rooms and eat it. Whole bags of chips and packages of cookies, gone. And then come down to the table for dinner, hungry. We recently had to buy our own 12-year-old son a second pair of new cleats halfway through a single baseball season because he's growing so fast. And he says, Dad, I'm uncomfortable. My toes hurt. The passage today is bookended by two very similar statements. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And at the end of the story that we read this morning, verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and the stature and in the favor of, of and the favor and in favor with God and man. So two statements at either side of the story that tell us this mind-blowing thing. Jesus grew. This is a brain-busting statement if you really let yourself think about it. The pre-existing second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the living word through which and by which the scriptures tell us all things were made, grew up. This is part of uh, the miraculous mystery that theologians use this word for, incarnation, which means actually becoming enfleshed, God becoming man. They talk about uh, that event and the way the scriptures describe it with that word, incarnation. And our passage today says that boy Jesus grew in stature. Uh, boy Jesus grew out of his sandals and his parents had to get him a new pair because his toes hurt. Someone had to tell a 12-year-old Jesus that it was time to start taking more showers. Scripture is reminding us that God did not simply appear as a man or uh, take on the appearance of a man, but that Jesus was a man. 
He had a body that began as an embryo inside his mother's womb and grew up through all of the awkwardness and discomfort and hunger of being 12 and 13 years old and became an adult body. He dealt with the same limitations of having a body as you and I do. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was tired and he needed rest, that he was hungry and that he needed food. He was, no doubt, uncomfortable in his body when he was 12 and 13 years old, as it changed and as he grew from being a boy into being a man. Jesus' body had a brain in it. He had a mind, and the passage tells us that he grew in wisdom, that he actually developed intellectually. God learned. Let that sink in. It's really hard to grapple with that, but theologian Kent Hughes, uh, talking about this idea of the incarnation, says, God the Son, Jesus, was all power. He says it, he placed his all-powerfulness and all presence and all knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. If that's difficult to understand, you're right. Sometimes we might be tempted to think about Jesus as having the mind of God and the body of a man, but that's not what the scriptures teach. They tell us that Jesus was not a mix of some kind of uh, concoction of humanity and divinity, but that he was fully God and fully man. And that means that his reasoning and his will and his emotions were the same sort of experience, sort of uh, in-body experience that you and I have. His experience as a human, as a boy Jesus, uh, means that he was not only growing up and growing out of his sandals, but that he was maturing We know that Jesus had lungs that needed air and a heart that pumped oxygen-rich blood to his body and his brain, and that those were functions that were traumatically halted by the skill of Roman executioners at a crucifixion. Jesus had a body, and somehow, uh, by becoming human, he walked through the same experience that you and I have of growing up and maturing even as he set aside some of those uh, things he chose not to access and let God be in control of some of those things that made him fully divine. This has at least two profound implications. I think there's lots more, uh, but I'll mention two this morning, the incarnation of Jesus. First, Jesus' incarnation, according uh, to author Sam Albury in his book, what God has to say about our bodies. Sam Elbury says there, Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. God not only thought up our bodies and enjoyed putting several billion of them together, but he made one for himself. Sam goes on to say, your body, my body, is not just there, 
It doesn't just, it's not just there happening to exist. It means something to God. He knows it. He made it. And he cares about it. This has profound implications in our cultural moment. In a cultural moment when there are powerful messages around us insisting that we do with our body, what we do with our bodies is solely up to us, up to our preference, up to our pleasure, up to our recreation, that our bodies are for us to remake or remold to tell the world who we are. Jesus' incarnation insists that God communicates to us about his purposes for us through the bodies that he gives us. Your body is a loving gift from a good father. And that is true even when you don't feel like you love the body that you have. And that is true for so many of us for so many reasons. Sam Albury goes on to say, all that Christ has done in his death and resurrection is not in order for us to one day escape our body, but for him one day to redeem it. Far from being a spiritual irrelevance, scripture tells us our body is meaningful. These quotes come uh, from a book that I mentioned, uh, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. It's a book that our staff here at Grace have been going through along with uh, our elders. And I'm looking forward to an opportunity to invite you as well. Uh, We're preparing a book study on this and several other cultural conversation topics of the moment. So, uh, but I commend it to you. Um, An opportunity to think through the implications of Christ and the gospel for our bodies in, uh, in a culture that thinks so much about our bodies. We're learning this morning that Jesus had to be fully human to affirm what God said about creation in the beginning. When God created well, what we, where we live and how we experience reality, and ultimately when he created the human body, he said, Uh, that it was good. And Jesus uh, comes into a broken world and to people whose bodies cause them so much frustration and difficulty um, and pain, and he reaffirms by taking on a body that that creation is good. He comes to show us that the salvation he's coming to bring is a real and experiential and material salvation. Salvation, one that's as real as our bodies, the bodies that we live and experience life in, that it's as real and material as our experience of death will be. We don't quite understand that, but we know that death is this moment when uh, our material existence and our experience of reality are uh, desperately connected. And so, Jesus has come to assure us that uh, God's love and his promise of redemption is as real and material as that. So real and material uh, that that will be our experience as well of our reunion with God when he makes all things new. 
as real as an embrace, as an embodied embrace. This is what he communicates us, not, what, not just with a boy Jesus growing up, but with Jesus' body dying on the cross and resurrecting. A real man with a real body that really died and really rose again. Secondly, when we say that God came to us in Jesus, we're saying that God came and experienced everything that it means to be human. That's what part of this story about boy Jesus is telling us. All the limitations of body and mind and maturity. This is one of the great comforts of Christianity. God is not far off pulling strings. Instead, he is intimately familiar with everything that it means to be human, to struggle with temptation and sickness and exhaustion. He knows what it's like to be you, every part of it, except for the sin. In Jesus, God fulfills one of our deepest needs as humans. As much as we want to know the answers, we want to know why things happen, as much as we'd like to be in on the plan and get explanation for the way things transpire, as much as we desire to be in control, what we need is to be known and to know that we're not alone. And Jesus knows. He knows what it's like uh, to lose a friend to death. The Gospel of John says that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. He knows what it's like to not have your prayers be answered the way that you hope that they will. Uh, we, we hear him praying, not my will, but yours be done. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and to feel like God is silent and far off and not listening. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows and he promises to be with you always to the very end of the age. Have you asked him for that? Have you considered how much more significant, how much more important that is right now than knowing all the whys, all the explanations? So Jesus, boy Jesus, tells us a lot about who Jesus had to be. The story also tells us about what he chose to do. Boy, Jesus, what he chose to do. So, I just read, uh, this is something like a 2,000-year-old passage. And if this 2,000-year-old passage proves anything, it's that communicating with a junior higher is extremely difficult. It can be a difficult and fearful and confusing thing. These days, we've complicated that with technology, right? Nobody has a landline in their house anymore. You can't call and see if your kid is there. And yet, uh, giving a 12 or 13-year-old a cell phone is a whole other crisis and debate, right? And it's not one I'm going to attempt to solve for you <laughs> this morning. This is only an illustration. But I do know that lots of us um, switch into a mode in that kind of place that when we have to make those kind of decisions in those kind of situations where we're more driven by fear than we are by function or security in who God has made us to be or who God has promised us 
uh, that he'll take, you know, that he'll take care of our families. Un- we, we can zip off into a place where we say, oh my gosh, unfettered access to social media and the internet at the fingertips of a 12-year-old. Nope, never. It's terrifying. There will never be a phone. And then in the next moment, you say, wait, you're going to be gone more from home more than ever. How am I going to get a hold of you? How am I going uh, to know where you are? Nobody has a landline. What if something happens to you and I can't get a hold of you? Here, take this phone, leave it on your person at all times, and then why aren't you answering your phone? Why aren't you answering your phone? Something must have happened. Call the police. They're not answering their phone. When we finally find Jesus listening and asking questions in the temple, Mary's words to Jesus seem to echo that kind of fear-driven parental activity. Here's her words. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Son, your father and I. My daughters informed me, unbeknownst to me, that they know when daddy's frustrated or they're in trouble because the sentence starts with, young lady. It's true. I discovered it after they said it. But Mary and Joseph's fearful operation is not the purpose of the passage. In fact, it seems clear that Luke includes this passage because he wants us to hear what Jesus says in response. And these are the first recorded words of Jesus the Christ. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? My father's house. Nobody talked about God like this before. Boy, Jesus. Almighty? Sure. Lord of hosts? Yes, absolutely. But father, and specifically dad, Abba, father, daddy, nobody talked about God intimately like this, affectionately, confidently. Not only does this introduce us to the fact that Jesus came to usher in a relationship with God unlike any that had been available to humanity before, uh, that we might also be able to say, Abba, Father. His instruction to us is to pray like this, Our Father. It, only, it not only tells us of this new way to be in relationship with God, but it also tells us that Jesus knew who he was. Even as a child speaking uh, of God and to God, uh, he knew who he was. This isn't just the way that Jesus spoke about God later in the New Testament. Uh, but this is the way he always spoke about God. And it would be the way uh, that uh, we hear him as a man. It's the way we hear him as a boy. And even in his words, he reminds us that this is the way that he always has spoken to and about God since before the creation of time. This is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And God has been his father since before there was time. This isn't a story about how Jesus disobeyed and deceived his parents. Uh, True, they had a right uh, to expect him to be where he was supposed to be. 
Um, but if we examine the passage, I think we find that they simply made some assumptions out of their fear and their anxiety about where he was supposed to be. And, uh, and Jesus' response isn't snarky, although I think that you could read it that way as disrespectful to mom and dad. I tried to give it a different tone because I think uh, that he is just honestly amazed that they didn't know where to find him. Um, it's as if in their moments of frantic searching, they have forgotten who Jesus is, the Son of God. But Jesus hasn't forgotten where, who he is, and he says to them sort of matter-of-factly, where else would I be? The temple was a symbol of God's presence with his people in the place where worship and sacrifice happened. It was the epicenter of God's relationship with his people. And that's where Jesus chose to be. It's where Jesus always chose to be. And it's where he continues to be. Jesus died on, on the cross. Uh, that moment is the epicenter of God's relationship with the people he created. It's, it's the moment when that relationship changed forever. Jesus' sacrifice for us taking on the consequences of our sin, even though he had endured everything we do without sinning, uh, that opened the door for us to take on the privileges of being the Son of God, being sons and daughters of a good, good Father and a righteous and fabulously wealthy and powerful King. Jesus, uh, in some accounts of his crucifixion, we're told that the, the, the curtain of the temple tore as he died. There's rich with symbolism about where the epicenter of, the rela of our relationship with God is now, moving uh, from being fearful worshipers on the other side of a temple curtain to being sons and daughters who can cry out, Abba, Father. If you've come this morning looking for answers or trying to find God, I hope that you have felt welcome. If you're uh, considering the claims of Christianity and you're trying to find out who God is or even if there really is a God, um, if you've come here feeling far off and numb in your relationship with God and remembering that it used to be uh, something that was more vibrant or life-giving, if you want to know uh, how to draw closer to God, get to know Jesus. He's the, he's the epicenter of the relationship between people and God. If you want to grow closer to God, pursue Jesus. He always chooses to be at that crux uh, where God and humanity meet, where uh, God expresses and shows his love for us. Jesus is the epicenter, so if you get close to Jesus, you will get close to God.